Okay, so today's reading is from Acts chapter 16, um, doing verses 16 to 40. So Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks, Fiona. Uh, hi, everybody. My name's Luke. If we haven't met yet, uh, it's great to be with you. 
uh, this morning. And so if we haven't met, I'd love to get a chance to chat with you and meet you with you uh, after the service. Uh, it's a real privilege to be with you this morning. My sister's visiting from America, so I have sibling power. I don't know what that is, but something fake, I'm sure. Uh, I, w I wonder uh, if you've ever signed up for a tat, like you've been asked to do something and you signed up for it, and then once you got into it, you realize, oh, this was a huge mistake. Like your mother-in-law asked you to host Christmas dinner, and you thought, yes, I want to be a good family member, and so I'll do that. And then you get in there and you realize, no, you have crazy cousins. Or perhaps you're in uni and you, they, you know, you're a part of a uni group and they say, why don't you be a part of the leadership team? You won't get paid for it at all, but, you, but it'll be good for your CV. Uh, and then once you get in, you realize, oh, everybody's crazy and I've got to manage all these personalities. Uh, or perhaps, yeah, any kind of leadership team where you are involved and you think, I'm a good servant-hearted person, I will do this. And then you realize, oh, this task is far more complex than I signed up for. Just different. Well, life in general is like that. It feels like that you, you've, you're, you're involved in different um, missions, different tasks, but then they turn out to be very, very different. Something that you didn't anticipate. Friendships are far more complex the longer you have them. Um, marriage is far more difficult than you anticipated or that anybody told you. And parenting even goes to the new level of how do you manage that. The Christian life in particular is even like that, right? You, you hear the message of salvation, of peace with God, and it's challenging. It's challenging to walk faithfully before the Lord. You expect that once you follow Christ, it's going to be like you're going into the Shire, and instead you feel like you're on the road to Mordor. But one of the most unexpected things in our own lives is that God uses those difficulties, those moments, those unplanned by us because we would not sign up for them by ourselves, he uses them as the actual means by which the gospel, the message of salvation, spreads. And so if you're new to the Bible or if you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts, the book, the book of Acts is about that moment, conversion, restoration that happens after the Lord Jesus was born, after he dies, and he resurrects and ascends. And so the story of the Bible is the story of our world. It goes from creation to new creation. The perfect relationship that God create, created between himself, humanity, our whole world is being restored through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. God is restoring all things to himself. He is restoring that harmony and so the book of Acts is about how the Spirit is pushing the gospel out. So you can think about the book of Acts like concentric circles. Jesus resurrects in Jerusalem, and then the message of the gospel must go out beyond Jerusalem, beyond the realm of Judea. And now what we find ourselves in Acts, we are in Greece. 
The gospel is moving out. And so the gem of God's restoration is that all people, all nations, and all tribes are being restored to himself. And so our passage then this morning continues in this section of the book of the message taking place in Greece. If you, uh, if you want to put that map up, I'm, I'm an Old Testament lecturer, so I love maps, right? Okay. Uh, it might be a little bit hard to see, but I, I'm very creative, and I drew a red circle around Philippi of where, where Paul finds himself. I do like a good map, though, okay? So, all right. So, so Paul, then, is in Philippi, an outpost of the Roman Empire, And as Aaron introduced to us last week, Paul receives a vision to go to Macedonia, part of the Greek Greek province there. And Aaron took us through a conversion of a woman named Lydia, who was a very wealthy, probably a very well-off businesswoman. And her heart was opened to the gospel, to the message. It was revealed to her. And she understood what secured her salvation in the Lord Jesus. And Aaron really showed us how actually it's God's providential hand. That is the way God governs his world in order for Lydia to know and to receive. And so our passage this morning actually continues with that same thing, that God is orchestrating his salvation. It's all being accomplished by God. But now what's going to develop is that he's going to show how the suffering and imprisonment of Paul and Silas is the thing that God uses to send his spirit to open the eyes and the hearts of a Philippian jailer and his household. Okay? And so the first part of our, our story then tells about the way the mission to take the gospel is disruptive. Okay? It's disruptive to the lives of Paul and Silas, even though that they're going, but it's disruptive to their lives in Philippi. So if you look at verses uh, 16 to 18, we see how Paul, while they're there, he's approached by, and he casts out a spirit of a girl who has, uh, yeah, casts out a spirit from a slave girl. Okay? So our, our passage in verse 16 tells us that they're on their way to a place of prayer. So apparently a, a, an established location to pray has been, uh, has been established in their ministry. And they're encou- they encounter a slave girl. She's owned, she has owners. And now this slave girl also has a, a spirit. A spirit that allows her to tell the future and her owners benefit from this. It's a revenue of income from them. Now you can imagine how lucrative of a business venture that might be, right? Just think about what you would do if you could tell the future. Maybe you would uh, invest money at a particular time in the stock market. Uh, Maybe you just wanna know uh, the right sports teams to bet on for the end of the season. Maybe how long uh, labor is going to last with you, when your child is born? Guilty. I literally asked the midwife during labor how long this is going to last. And, she, and her response was, if I could tell you, I'd be a very rich person. So she, she knew. All right. So in verse 17, uh, this slave girl follows them around and proclaims that Paul and Silas are servants of God. 
and that they have the message of salvation. Wow. She recognizes in this spirit, she recognizes the true work of God at work. And it it kind of is a little bit humorous. Verse 18, Paul gets so annoyed after day after day after day of this that he casts out the Spirit in the name of Christ. And the Spirit comes out right away. So, you know, in the Gospels, we see the Lord Jesus who casts out demons as a part of his ministry, delivering people from the realm of darkness, literal realm of darkness, And he also gives his disciples authority in the Gospels to deliver people from demonic spirits. And it shows the power and authority that Christ has over the spiritual realm. That at his name and nobody else's is somebody delivered. Now, the question is, why does Paul do this? Why does he find this so aggravating? Uh, And a a little bit, a, a bit of a mystery Uh, But a a couple options might be that there could be confusion as they are in a new province with lots of other deities, okay? In this very religious environment with multiple gods, her proclamation has the potential to confuse about what, what God Paul and Silas are proclaiming. It's a possibility. It also might be the fact that she, people know that she has a spirit, And it is a confusion about how does that spirit relate to the living God. However it is, Paul delivers her from this spirit, heals her. Uh, But we see in verses 19 to 24, this leads to their accusation and their public, uh, public beating. Okay, so in verse 19, verse 19 actually shows us the real issue here. They have removed this spirit that was able to predict the future, that was a revenue of income for her owners, and they realized that their hope of making money was gone. But then we see in verses 20 to 24 what the real issues are, or or what, what their proposed issues are. Verse 20 says that they are Jews, which is obviously true. Verses 20 and 21, they accuse them of putting the city of Philippi in an uproar by advocating customs not lawful. Now, this charge seems could be a little bit more dubious. They are perhaps guilty of introducing the Christian faith in a Greco-Roman context that recognized a plethora of other deities But the city seems far from an uproar, or at least seems to be more exaggerated. Now, this type of accusation really hits home. They are taken before the magistrates, and the magistrate's job, as any lawkeepers are, is to keep peace, okay? Uh, It's going to hit home. Their job is to keep peace, to enforce Roman law. And then we see what the result is. The crowd comes together and there is a public, there's a physical attack. They are stripped naked, they are flogged, they're beaten, and finally they are thrown in prison. Following Christ can be quite disruptive to our lives. See, the message of the Bible is that our lives and our loves are all misdirected because of sin. 
Instead of loving God and loving the world around us and living under his authority, we seek to be our own rulers, to, to live lives as, as we see fit, to determine our own destiny, to be the, the captains of our own souls. But when we encounter the message of Jesus, when we, when we trust in him, it changes who we are. It realigns our loves and we seek to live more faithfully to him. It might, it might actually dis be disruptive in the sense that you might, be, you might feel the urge by God's spirit to change your career. Everything that you thought you were working towards is now redirected. Maybe changes the course of your study, changes the way you parent, the way you spend your money. And the gospel can be disruptive to those around us. If you've come to Christ, I'm sure that that decision has become disruptive to certain relationships because your values and your loves have been redirected. And it's because the gospel changes all of who we are. And so the gospel is disruptive also because it does ask us to go and to tell. It is a public message. I think about the Purdy's who have moved their whole lives to Santiago, Chile, in order that the country of Chile would know Christ more. Okay. It, it places us in, it takes us to places we never thought we would actually go or actually sign up for before him. Okay. Now, I'm not sure what Paul and Silas were thinking when they went to Macedonia, what they would encounter, but I have a feeling that they didn't think that, okay, following Christ will lead to prison. And to prison that seems to be a little bit trumped up. And so they, the message of, so the, the gospel is disruptive, can be disruptive, but also it has, the gospel is the message, message of salvation. It contains the message of salvation. So Paul and Silas, they find themselves in prison in verse 25. They're in jail for following God's call to Macedonia. They're in jail for what they think is being faithful by delivering a, a spirit from a slave girl. And now they are physically assaulted and chained. How do you respond to that? How do you, how easy would it be to be discouraged that you feel God is calling me to this mission and now I am in prison? Do you question God's calling? Do you question what he has, whether he is directing you? How do Paul and Silas respond? Verse 25, they respond by singing and praying. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Okay. I don't know. We don't actually know what they prayed and sang. We just know that they did. Uh, but if I was to speculate, I wonder if they were, were singing psalms of trust, psalms of confidence. So the, you know, there's a kind of genre of psalms in the book of Psalms that are all about trust and confidence. There, the psalmist, the singer, is in some sort of situation that they need God to deliver them from. And they place all of their hope and trust knowing that God 
will save them. Uh, a, few, a few weeks, maybe, I can't remember how long ago, but Cam took us through Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is, you know, sometimes seen as the pinnacle of Psalms of trust. You know, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Going to God in prayers and in singing is an act of trust in those moments. The Bible teaches us that we can lament, we can mourn when we are in these situations, and we can go to him because he has the power to deliver. And a pattern that we see over and over in the Bible is that God frequently does his mighty work in the ways that we least expect it. You know, God rescues his people from famine in the book of Genesis. How does he do that? By sending Joseph to be a slave in Egypt in order that he might rise to second in command. I mean, most ultimately, how does he save the whole world? It's by taking on human flesh and being born as an infant in order to live die and resurrect. He brings life by dying. How counterintuitive is that? And so God uses the way we act and respond in these situations to testify to others who he is. And people notice. People notice how we respond in those situations. People notice the changes of your heart, the realignment the changes of your loves. They notice when you start being sacrificial. People notice the way you, you respond to life's setbacks, when those setbacks are related to, to your faith. Notice in verse 25, as I read, as Paul and Silas are praying and singing, the prisoners were listening. And so in those times of difficulty, we also have to be prepared with the message of the gospel. As they are praying and singing at some unknown time, verse 26, there's a miraculous earthquake just in the nick of time, right? And this earthquake frees Paul and the rest of the prisoners. Now, earthquakes happen in this area, so they're not unheard of. But it is God's providential timing that the earthquake happens, the shackles are released. But this miraculous deliverance is bad news for this jailer. Why? Because, well, the jailer uh, is under, you know, is watching these prisoners and he's held personally responsible for their lives. If they escape, he will pay with his own life. So what does he do? The earthquake happens. He goes and he sees the doors are open and he's about to take his own life because that is going to be a preferable death than the one that the Romans have in store for him. But what happens in verse 28 is that he is delivered physically. Verse 28, Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. So before he's able to proceed with his own suicide, Paul calls him to tell him, hey, we're all here. How extraordinary is that? The jail doors are open, but no one leaves. It is the shortest season of prison break, right? 
Like, it's like they're there, it's, it's done, it's, do, it's done and over. Sometimes you wish that show would have been like that, right? Okay. It, show, it shows the impact of praying and singing on these prisoners. I think it also shows Paul and Silas's care for this Philippian jailer. You could imagine how easy it would be to interpret, there's a great earthquake, my shackles are gone, this is God telling me, walk out the door. But apparently Paul and Silas did not interpret it that way because Paul knew what would happen to this jailer. So here you have Paul and Silas not escaping when the opportunity is there and instead care for the jailer who is holding them prisoners, loving others loving our enemies, loving those who actually might be responsible for enacting some sort of injustice to us. Now, of course, nobody does this better than the Lord Jesus who actually dies for his enemies. For while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He dies in order that we might live. Okay? So having the message of the gospel, the message of life, okay? So the jailer is delivered. He's delivered from his own death sentence. And what does he do in verses 29 and 30? He rushes to Paul, he falls on his feet, and he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Well, what, what leads to this question? Was it the very public message that the slave girl had? That, this, that these men are of God and that they proclaim the message of salvation? Was it the way Paul and Silas respond to the public beating? Was it their praying and singing in the jail? Was it Paul and Silas's ability to keep all of the other prisoners there to deliver his life? It's maybe all of the above. You know, when you think about your own salvation, think about Actually, it isn't usually just one person or one moment, but it is a combination of things that God has worked in your life to bring you to him. And I think the same thing for this jailer. And it's a helpful reminder that our actions, the way we live our everyday lives, lead to deeper questions. What must I do to be saved? So when you live differently, when you live unto God, it does raise questions. When you love those who wrong you, it raises questions. And so we, we must be prepared with that message. And what, in verses 31 to 34, Paul tells us, or the, the message of salvation is, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul, Paul and Silas are, are ready with an answer. Of course, they are missionaries. That, you know, it seems that that's their mission, their task. But we likewise have that mission and task. We are to trust Christ. Okay, so there are a few things to note just about, about what they say here in verses 31 to 34. First is that the way of salvation is belief. Okay? Now, I kind of use interchangeably belief and trust because it's the same word there. I think um, probably in our context, trusting is a more helpful word, okay? So we are to trust 
Christ. So what does it, what does it mean to, to believe or to trust him? Okay? It means to, to trust in the person and work of Christ to, to deliver you from your fallenness and the fallenness of our world. Okay? Now, this is a very different belief than, uh, the, you know, we just came out of Christmas, and there's lots of these Christmas stories about, oh, if only we believe more than the reindeer can fly, sort of thing. Which, of course, is, undercuts the whole effectiveness of, of that for Christ. That's not, you know, it's not that if I just believe more, then Christ is more of a savior. No. The effectiveness of Christ is trusting in his gift for you. Okay? The effectiveness of Christ's gift is trusting in his work rather than your own. Now, of course, this is something that's very counterintuitive, objected in our own culture, because the message of salvation is that actually you are in need and you are incapable of doing it yourself. You are incapable of saving yourself. Okay? And so trusting in Christ is more than cognitive. That is, it's more than just knowing the facts that the Lord Jesus came and that he rose. It's actually trusting in that work to deliver you. Okay? So, you know, imagine you are convicted of a crime and that you are really guilty of that crime. And you know of a really, you know, the best defense lawyer in Adelaide. It's one thing to know that there is a lawyer who could, who could help you. It is another thing to employ that lawyer to relinquish your whole life your whole future to this lawyer to take you before that judge. One is just knowing, the other is actually trusting. Okay, so it is trusting. Secondly, it's trusting in Christ. Okay, salvation is accomplished because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is the Savior. And so, when you trust, you trust in Him and Him alone. You are trusting in His ability to fulfill on your behalf what you ought to have done, which is to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that He has borne our punishment in order that we might live, okay? Christianity does not claim that salvation, uh, Christianity does claim that salvation is only found in trusting him. So there is an exclusivity. Salvation is only found in the one who can bring it and secure it on your behalf. The third thing, is that the invitation, the way of salvation is extended to all, okay? For, for, the, for the Philippian jailer, we see that it is for his whole household. Salvation is both for Jew and Gentile. And so it is the, as one pastor has said, it's the most inclusive, exclusive message. Salvation is not limited to the Jew. It's not limited to the elite and the wealthy. It's not, you know, not to the, to the academic. 
Salvation is for all nations and the entire household. And because it's extended to all and to all, you know, for the Philippian jailer, to his whole household, it means that all people must respond. And that's what we see out of the response of the jailer. What does he do? He brings Paul and Silas to his whole household so that they might hear this message. And so the gospel contains the message of life. And there is also the hope of vindication that the, cost, that the gospel creates. Okay, this is verses 35 to 40. Okay, so after, after this whole household has been baptized because they have believed, extraordinarily, Paul and Silas go back to prison. They're, they're re, I'm assuming, re-locked up. But in verses 35 to 36, we see that they are released. Okay? The upside-down upside events here, the gospel spreading through them being jailed, they are now actually released from prison. Okay? Verses 35 and 36. It was daylight. The magistrate sent their officer to the jailer with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas are to be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Okay? But Paul actually refuses to be released without the public vindication of the gospel. Okay? He, fun, you know, he throws this uh, kind of like a fun little twist in the plot here, which is instead of quietly being disposed in order not to draw attention to themselves, Paul actually appeals to his cit Roman citizenry to show that they were unlawfully jailed. Okay? And now he wants the magistrates, those responsible, to come and publicly escort them, okay? Now, I don't think that this is about a personal vindication, okay? I love those, like, detective novels where, like, you know, the, you know, the innocent one is finally at the end vindicated in the eyes of everybody. No, I think this is actually more about the message of the gospel being vindicated, okay? That, that the charges against Paul and Silas were actually false charges, and just as they were publicly beaten, they should actually be escorted publicly as well. It's about the reputation of the gospel. You know, for Paul, he uses his citizenship to show that the message of Jesus is not at odds with what Rome, with being good citizens within the Roman Empire is. It does not create havoc. but he also wants that the clearest message of the gospel to be heard. And so verses 38 to 40, they do come and they are, they are released. And so there is a, there's a public defense of the gospel here, of that message with Paul and Silas finally being released. And so God, God does vindicate his people. That is, he, he confirms and he defends them against all injustice, okay? God, he demonstrates the truthfulness of the lives of his people and their message. Now, and that's because, he does that because he will vindicate the name of Jesus before all. Those who are in Christ are his adopted children and he 
will defend them. And it's because God will defend the name of Jesus for all to know. You know, Philippians 2 tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. There is a public declaration, a public defense of the name of Jesus. Now, at this moment, Paul and Silas are vindicated and they are delivered. Okay? Uh, and, and for some, maybe the suffering of the gospel now here in this life will be defended. Maybe that has already happened. But I think frequently what we find is that the vindication, the defense does not happen in this life, but rather is in, found in the life to come. And so I think that idea that, about that God will publicly defend his people, is to, the exhortation is to hold on to that promise that even if it's not found in this life, it will come. I love that promise from Isaiah. It's also repeated in the book of Revelation, that idea where, where God wipes away every tear from every eye. And so hold on to that promise, that the believing in Christ now and the suffering that happens now will be done away with. And so, in order to, to wrap up then, first, remember that the gospel is disruptive. And that is actually a great thing. For it is disrupting the effects of sin in our own lives and in our world. God, through his spirit, is completely renovating our hearts and lives to make us who we were created to be under him. Okay? Okay? And that renovation process will lead to questions. And because it leads to questions, remember the gospel is the message of life, that it is the message of salvation. It is the message of being right with our creator through Christ. And that is on offer for everyone. And finally, be encouraged. This life will be full of frustrations, injustices. But remember, there is vindication for those who are found in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, we pray that your spirit would use it to, to show us the life that is found in Christ, that you would use it to... Um, Show us our own sin, our own need, in order that we might fully embrace and believe in what Christ has done for us. So, uh, God, we ask that your spirit would use us, uh, use your word uh, to make us more like you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.